0: Amen. Well, good morning, Living Stones. Great to be with you guys this morning, celebrating Christmas today. And uh, I just want to reiterate something that Meredith said when uh, taking all the the gifts over to the YWCA this week. Uh, Thank you guys so much. You guys went above and beyond. And it it was just, they were were overwhelmed by all that was brought in. and, And you guys definitely rose to the occasion. Just want to tell all of you just a huge thank you for being a part of that and, and allowing our church to just be such a blessing to, to them this time of year is uh, wonderful. So um, so in, in the month of December, we've been going through our Christmas series that we've been calling Let There Be. And, and in this series, one of the things I've been reminding uh, us of at the beginning of each one of our messages ha- has been that when God created the world, He spoke and things happened. And, and then after when God created something, He pronounced that it was good. That, that it was good. When, it, when he created the, the, the earth and the moon and the stars and the, and the, uh, the lakes and, and the animals, all of that, he announced that it was good. But at, when sin entered the picture, when Adam and Eve disobeyed God, when they took a bite from the uh, fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, all that, that God had created became marred. What was originally created to be good, then all of a sudden... Did not, uh, was not exactly what God had created them to be. And, and so in, in spite of our disobedience, in spite of our rebellion towards God, right there in the garden, God initiated, God started His rescue plan for how He was going to restore all the things that had been lost during the fall. He, he formulated how He wanted things to be made right once again. And, and that's what we're celebrating this week during, during Christmas. That when we gather together with family, when we gather together with friends, we are celebrating God's rescue plan of, of Him restoring and making things right, all the things that were lost during, during the fall. And, and so, God, I'll, I'll say it like this, God's gift to us is the restoration, is restoration of, of making things right once again. And, and so far in this series, we've talked about how Jesus came to restore and bring back joy into into our lives once again that had been lost to bring back peace. Well, this morning, we're going to be taking a look at the essence of who God really is manifested in the person of Jesus Christ. Now, when when I was a kid, uh, the neighborhood I grew up in, there there was a, a bunch of, of, of kids right around my age that all lived on the same block or two. And there was about five or six of us and, and we just, we hung out together all the time when we were kids. Like, in, in the summer, we would get on our bikes right after breakfast, and we would just leave for the day. We'd go, you know, biking all over town. We went on different bike uh, bike paths, heading down to, to the Milwaukee River, going down to Lake Michigan. I mean, it was it was awesome. It was an incredible time. And, and in fact, like, if my parents knew half the places that we went on our bikes, they would have just probably lost it. I mean, we, we, we did some pretty dumb things during that time as well, but but also being a kid that grew up who grew up in the '80s. All right, yeah, there's, there's a good number of it. Like, I want mean, an incredible decade to grow up. Like, I remember, like I, I'm old enough to remember the the original Nintendo coming. Like, I mean, this was a game changer for like. I mean, before like they had like the Atari, like no, but having an eight-bit gaming system was, like, amazing, and, and so I, I didn't have one at my house, but I had two friends that had a Nintendo, and so we would go over to their house and play Duck Hunt or Tecmo Bowl or, or Mario, like, and Super Mario 3 was, like, the best one with the raccoon tail, and I mean, it was, it was, it was amazing. Like, it, it was a truly incredible time, and, and then me, me and my friends, like, we used to eat over at one another's house an awful lot, and, and so what we would do is we'd gather together, and we'd call and say, all right, what are we having for dinner? And we'd find out what our friends were having for dinner. Did any of you guys do that? And then whoever was having the better meal, we'd go and eat at their house instead because I didn't want to eat what was being served at my house. Like, we, we just kind of had this open door policy amongst all of our, our group of friends that we had where we just kind of came in and out and hung out and, and all that. And it really was an incredible time growing up. But I, but I, had, I had one friend who had a dad that really kind of scared us a, a, a bit. We were always kind of afraid of Mr. Werner. And, and, and he, like he was the kind of dad who was always always stressed out. He was a big guy, had a loud, booming voice. And, and we always, like, whenever we were over at his house, we always, like, kind of walking around in eggshells because we didn't want to get on his bad side. In fact, if we knew Mr. Werner wasn't there, we purposely wouldn't go over to Jonathan's house because we just wanted to avoid him at all costs, because we, we because we we always felt like we were like a step away from getting yelled at and getting getting hollered at, you know wh- whether we were running in the house making too much noise, we closed the door too loud, you know the we left the water running too long. I mean, like we were always afraid of getting on Mr. Warner's bad side, constantly being in fear. And, and if, if you grew up in a home like that, I, I'm I'm sorry, like I I hope that doesn't bring up. Bad memories for you because that's a, that's a difficult uh, situation for any child to grow up in. You know, like for me, I could at least go back to my house, you know Jonathan, he he had to be around that all the time, and it was really, really difficult for, excuse me, for him. and And throughout all of all of, all of human history, this has been the unfortunate reality of many, many people as it relates to how they relate to God or to, in different civilizations, to the gods. Like virtually every civilization, virtually every people group around throughout the ages have had this perception that the gods are angry, and we need to try to do what we can to stay on their good side, to try to avoid making them mad, you know, just trying to do whatever we can to to appease them in any way. We we talked about this in our Good and Beautiful God series that we did during the summer months, and I'd encourage you to go back and, and listen to that if if you want to know more but but this really has unfortunately been the dominant uh, narrative throughout Christianity as well that that you know god is, we, if we do right god is going to be pleased but if we make too much noise if we slam the door if we step out of line we're going to begin to feel god's wrath and that's a, that's a, that's a narrative that that many of us have have had but what we celebrate this week what we celebrate on December 25th is the antithesis of that line of thinking. Like, that the Christmas is not about God's wrath, it's not about God's anger or God's punishment, but Christmas is all about celebrating God's amazing, incredible, irrational, undeserving, never-ending, reckless, and indescribable love for you and I. That's what Christmas is all about, celebrating the insane, incredible love that God has for every single one of us. Now, now, I would venture to say, just about all of us, if, most of us, if not all of us, have heard John three sixteen before. Like maybe you've seen people holding up a sign at a, at a at a sporting event. You know the guy behind the the, the goalposts, Tim Tebow. Like he made a, a number of years back, he put John three sixteen on his eye black. If you've ever, has anybody ever eaten an In and Out burger? Handful. all right yeah like if you look on the bottom of your cup there's a John 3:16 written on the bottom of your in n out burger cup even like on billboards like we've seen John 316 like it is a very familiar passage to to most of us in, in, in the room and and for good reason because it really sums up God's heart towards us towards his his people towards all of humankind so I wanted I want to read John 316 and 17 to you right now. It says, For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, that whoever would believe in Him would not perish but have eternal life. And, and most people stop here. But if you continue reading in verse 17, it's every bit as important. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through Him. That's so vital and so important that, that God didn't... He, he didn't send Jesus as a baby into the world to kind of get even with mankind. Like, like Jesus being born, it was the turning point of all of history. But it wasn't to condemn everybody, to let everyone know how wrong they've been to try to, you know, set the record straight. But it was to save the world, not to condemn the world, but to save it. And, and especially if if you've been in the church world, if you've been around the church for any period of time, it's easy to read or hear John 3.16 and nod our heads in agreement and move on. But what I'm praying for all of us this morning is that we would have really a renewed sense of wonder about what this verse is really saying to us. A renewed sense of wonder about what God's incredible love for us truly means. Now, now there's there's a common question that I've heard over my, my years that I've been in ministry, and, and if I'm honest with you, it's a question I've asked of myself more times than, than I could possibly count, because one of the things that, that, that I find, and, and maybe you're like me, it's easy to believe and, and know and understand God's grace and God's love for other people, but it's a, it's a lot harder to believe it for myself. I, I don't know if, if you guys have ever felt that way, but, but I, I've struggled with that, with that a lot, because because I know what I've done. I know the things that I've said that I wish I could take back. I know the things that I've done that I don't want anybody in this room to know about. I know the dark thoughts that I've had. I know the people that I've hurt throughout my lifetime. And so the question that I've wrestled with is that, you know, again, I I get it for other people, but why would God love somebody like me? Why would God love someone like me? I, we spent the, this past weekend, we went up to go see uh, my parents, spent a couple days celebrating Christmas with them. And I, I can still remember vividly, I know exactly where I was when I was 16 years old, and I said the most hurtful, nasty thing to my mom, and she wept. Like, I, 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 I still remember it. I, I'll never forget that. I remember the times that I've lost my temper with my kids. I know the times that I've neglected to love Angela in the way that she needs. Like, I, I remember the, the things that I regret so much in life that I wish I could go back and I wish I could fix, and I can't. And so I, I'm left with that question. Why, why would God love someone like me? Because I, I sure wouldn't love me <laughs> if I was God. Like, I, I know the things that, that I've I've done, like I've felt so unworthy, so undeserving of God's love. And, and if, we look at, if we look in Scripture, there were many people that we read about in the Bible that felt this exact same way. If we listen to, to Job, and, and the book of Job in the Old Testament is, is a fascinating study. It really is. And at the, at the end of that book, after Job had kind of come through his trial and he sees God in his purest form, in his purest essence. And in Job 42, verse 5, he says, My ears have heard of you, but now I have seen you, with my eyes have seen you. I, I mean, that's that's a message all in itself, right there. Like I've heard of you before, but now I've seen you. And then he goes on to say, Therefore, I despise myself, and I repent in dust. And ashes. It, like Job is kind of saying, all right, God, I, I've seen you in, in, your, in your holiness, in your perfection, in your beauty. I, like I've heard these things, but now I've seen it. And then I look at myself in the mirror and, and I'm, I'm disgusted with what I see. God, I, I'm not worthy of you. I'm, I'm not deserving of your love and your grace in my life. And Paul, Paul in the New Testament, in his first letter to, to the church in Corinth, He's kind of reflecting about things he's done in his life and things that he's participated in and experienced. And in 1 Corinthians 15, 9, he says, for I am the least of the apostles, and I do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. You can hear the regret in his voice as he's writing this, when he's looking back on his life and he recalls the horrible things that he's did in the name of God, like on God's behalf, what he thought was on God's behalf. And he, he did these terrible things that before becoming a Christian, he made a sport out of going and finding them and, and killing them and arresting them. Like, he used to wear that as a badge of honor, and now he's saying, God, why would God love someone like me? And, and not only do we sometimes have things that, that we regret, we, we wonder, all right, why, why would God love me? There's also times we all wrestle... And deal with feelings of insignificance as well. Like God, of, of of the billions of people that have walked this planet, why would you care about the things in my life? Why would you care about me? Like the, the, there are so many bigger needs, so much, so many more important people out there than me. Like, who who am I in this in the big scheme of things that, that you're doing, Lord? And, and again, when we read through the Bible, some some of the biggest players. In scripture, that we would kind of put in our our hall of fame of faith, on the Mount Rushmore of faith, they dealt with these same types of of insecure thoughts of of insignificance, where where God is having a conversation with Moses as he's getting ready to raise Moses up to lead the people out of Egypt. And in Exodus chapter 311, Moses says to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? Like, God, I'm a nobody. I, what, what do I have? What, what do I bring to the table that you would want to use me, that you would care about me in my life? D- David says the same thing in, in 1 Kings chapter 3, where he says, who am I? God, who, who am I? Why, why would you love somebody? Why would you care about somebody like me? And I'm quite certain that, that if we had an honest conversation, every one of us in the room have had these same types of thoughts. These same thoughts uh, of feeling unworthy, undeserving, insignificant. God, why, why me? And the, the good news for, for all of us here that have dealt with those feelings, of feeling unworthy and insignificant, is that Jesus actually speaks about the heart of God as, as it relates to each, the passion he has for each and every one of us. Then in Luke chapter 15, Jesus told a, a series of three parables one of them was about a woman who, she had, she had a bunch of coins and she lost one of them. And she tore the house apart trying to find it, this one coin that was so valuable to, valuable to her. And when she finally fought, found it, she called all of her friends together and they celebrated because she found this one lost coin. He goes on to share a parable about a father whose, whose son left home. And he, and he was heartbroken, and he prayed, and he watched, and he waited for his son to come come back. And when he, his son finally came home, he had through this huge celebration because his son, who had once been lost, had now been found. And then he tells another parable about a shepherd who had a hundred sheep. And one of them got lost and wandered off and he left the 99 sheep that were found to go after and pursue the one that was lost. And when he found that one sheep that was lost, he put him over his shoulders and he brought all of his friends together and he celebrated the one that was now found once again. We serve a God who puts a huge significance on the one. A huge significance on the one. The the one that seems lost. The one that seems insignificant. God's love compels him. To pursue and to chase after the lost, the unworthy the insignificant and and the good news for all of us here today as well is love isn 't just something that God does it's who he is and so if you're taking notes, I want you to write this down that God is love God love isn 't just something that that God does it's not it's not just an action that he participates in it 's actually who he is in one of the greatest chapters. In the Bible as it relates to the love of God, 1 John chapter 4, starting in verse 8, John writes, whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. This is how God showed love among us. He sent His one and only Son into the world that we might live through Him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Love's not just what God does; it's who He is. And, and in fact, this passage actually goes on to to reiterate that it says it, says it again a few verses later, where he says, "God is love." And, and when we can recognize that love is is not just an action; it's not just something that God does, but it's actually the essence of who He is. It changes everything because it's not just it's not just an abstract idea. Well, God, He loves when He feels like it, and when He's angry, when He's upset, when He's disappointed, well, then He stops loving. That's not who He is. God is love. It's an integral part of who He is. And coming to that realization that love isn't just an action that He does, but it's actually who He is, that we begin to recognize there's nothing we can do to earn any more of God's love, and there's nothing we can do to disqualify ourselves from God's love either. And, and I, I was thinking about this this week, and it might not be a perfect analogy, but I was thinking about a, a lion in a lot of ways. That, 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 that a lion, you know, eating meat is not just something that a lion does, it's who he is. Like a, a lion is a predator, it's a carnivore, it's, it's who he is at his core. He's not going to sit here and make a choice, all right, I'm going to let that antelope walk by because, man, this grass just looks amazing, and I'm going to eat some, no, because being a predator, being a carnivore is who he is. You can we can't change that about, about the lion. And this leads me to, to my next point, one that's vital for us as we get and, and vital for us to get deep down inside of us if we're truly going to grasp and understand the love of God. And it's that God's love is unmerited. God's love is unmerited. Be, because God is love, because it's in, because it is his nature because it's who he is and not just something that he does, there's nothing that we can do to earn God's love. There's nothing we can do to merit God's love. And, and in, in our world that we live in now, the things we have is because we've, we've earned them by and large. We go out and, and we earn a paycheck for the hours that we worked. Some, you know We try to earn a promotion. We try to earn our boss's approval. We try to earn res- respect or trust from our friends. But that's not how God interacts with us at all. When, when Paul wrote his letter to the church in Ephesus, he was reminding them of this fact that there's nothing they could do to earn God's grace or God's love. In Ephesians 2:8, he says, "For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith." He says, "And this is not from yourselves. You didn't do anything to earn God's grace. You didn't do anything to earn God's approval." He says, "It's not from ourselves. It is a gift." is a free gift from, from God. We, we didn't earn it. We, we didn't earn God's grace. We, we, did, we can take absolutely no credit for God's love in, in our life. And so th- this week I, I, did a little, I did a little exercise. I, I, I wanted to kind of write down and just brainstorm all right, the different types of people who God loves, starting with A's and then going to B's and C's. And, and this is by no means an exhaustive list, But it was just something that I just kind of sat down and was writing about. And I could go through the whole alphabet, but you don't want to stay here that long. So, who who does God love? A's. God loves artists, astronauts, aerospace engineers, accordion players, ankle biters, animal rights activists, athletes, anarchists, accountants, especially during tax season. He loves people from Alabama, Alaska, Africa, Albania. He loves absent minded people, aggressive people, awkward people, antisocial people, and even aggravating people. Thank God for that. Who does God love? Bees. God loves babies, boys, band leaders, ballerinas, Bible readers, biology teachers, bisexuals, bird watchers, bus drivers, beekeepers, bowlers, baby boomers, blondes, brunettes boring people, bookworms, bachelors, and even Bears fans. Who, do, who does God love? He loves the beat up, the bummed out, the burned out, bartenders, brats, and he even loves Baptists. Like, who does God love? The seas. God loves Catholics, charismatics, congressmen, crooks, creeps, cheaters, charlatans, Cubans, Caucasians, Czechoslovakians. Cherokees, Comanches, Californians, cops, clowns, child molesters, cooks, celebrities, cheerleaders, and even country music fans. Like, that's how big God's love is. So, I. <laughs> love is not just something God does, but it's who he is. It's unmerited, it's undeserved, it is unearned. And, and the next time we feel unworthy, the next time we feel undeserving, we can remind ourselves of that fact. I, I haven't done anything to earn God's love. It's not something that He does, it's who He is. It's who God actually is. That is the amazing thing. God's amazing love for us is what we celebrate on Christmas. When, when God, when, when love... Became flesh. When love became flesh, and the final thing—the final thing I want to share this morning—is something that I think is so significant for all of us today. And if you're taking notes, I want you to write this down: We love because God first loved us. We only have the ability to love God and to love other people because God loved us first. Two two weeks ago we referenced when Jesus was asked about what's the greatest commandment. They were trying to trap him, and he said to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And he said, and the second one is just like it. I want you to love your neighbor as yourself. Like, we only have the ability. We only have the capability of loving God and loving others because God first loved us. I mentioned before about 1 John chapter 4, and I'm going to continue a few verses later. It's an incredible chapter talking about God's amazing love. It's on our reading plan for this week. And 1 John 4:13 says, This is how we know that we live in Him and that He is in us, that He has given us His Spirit. And we have then seen and testify that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in them and they in God. And so we know and we rely on the love God has for us. Here he says it, John says it again, God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. This is how love is made complete among us, so that we may have confidence on the day of judgment that in this world we are like God. Jesus. And I, I want you to catch this, this last thing that John is saying here. He says, there is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love, but we love because he first loved us. H- hear what John is saying there. Perfect love casts out, drives out all fear, fear of God, fear fear of man. Like, we, we can love others and love God freely only because God loved us first. You remember I, I, when I was sharing with you at the beginning about Mr. Werner? Like, we were fearful. Like, you, you went up to him and you talked sheepishly, you talked quietly. Like, you hope you didn't say the wrong thing and get on his bad side and have him lash out at you. He said, perfect love drives out fear. That we can, we can approach God, we can love God, we can interact with God because His perfect love has driven that fear away. We, we don't have to approach Him with fear and trepidation. We, we, don't, we, don't have to, we don't have to be worried when we come to God with apprehension or with guilt. But we can come to Him freely without guilt, without shame, without trying to earn God's approval in any way at all because... God first loved us. Like, I can't begin to state how important understanding that really is. Now, now does this mean that people can, and, and, and every single one of us, you and I have all done this, that we have taken advantage of the love and grace of God? All, all of us in the room have at one point or another, where we've taken advantage of, of that love and that grace. And, and can, you know, like, d- that, that kind of love, it, does it open itself up to that? Absolutely. It absolutely does. But when we experience the unmerited and the unconditional love of God, we don't want to take advantage of it. Unconditional love, let me tell you, unconditional love is risky business. Like it was risky to say, all right, if you went to your spouse, you went to your kids, you went to anybody in your life and said, you know what? Anything you do to me, it's not going to change how I feel about you. I'm going to love you regardless of whether you love me back. I'm going to love you if you cheat on me, you hurt me, you wound me, if you killed me. I'm still going to love you. Like, uh, unconditional love is risky. But that's the chance that God was willing to take on you and I. He was willing to take that risk, to open yourself up to, to hurt and to disappointment. And that's what Jesus did. That's what He did for you and I. And In week one of this series, we talked about when Jesus came and spoke to, the, or excuse me, when the, the angel came and spoke to Joseph about Jesus' birth. And in Matthew one twenty one, the angel spoke to him and said, she will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus because He will save His people from their sins. Christmas, the, the birth of Jesus is all about God's amazing love for you and for me. He was born. He came to save you, and He came to save me from from our sins. We we could not deal with it on our own. We couldn't deal with our sin problem on our own. The Old Testament sacrifice system couldn't deal with the sin problem. No amount of human effort could ever take care of the sin issue that, that we have, and that's the reason that Jesus came that he was born. And, and if you remember, I, I shared with you John three sixteen at the very beginning. If you can put that up on the screen one more time. And I want you, I want you to think through this verse for a moment. And take out, take out the world and I want you to put your name in its place. For God so loved Pat Malloy that he gave his one and only son that if I would believe in him I would not perish but have eternal life. For God so loved Kat. For God so loved Tom. For God so loved Kevin. For God so loved April. For God so loved Amber. For God so loved Jenna. Think about that for a moment. For God so loved me that he gave his one and only son, that if I would believe, I would not perish, but I would have eternal life. Like how often this time of year we've heard the phrase, Jesus is the reason for the season. And and that's true. I'm actually going to change it slightly. I'll say you and I are the reason for the season. And that's not meant to sound sacrilegious at all. But the whole reason that Jesus came to begin with is because of God's love for you and for me. We are the reason that Jesus came. We are the reason that, 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 that love that Jesus left heaven, put on flesh, came into the world as a baby and was born in a stable. You and I are the reason that love came, became flesh. That's the reason for Christmas. That's the reason for this season. And so I want to close with one final thought here this morning. When when we went back to Milwaukee over the weekend and we exchanged gifts and we we ate and you know had had time with with family with my mom and my dad and my brother and sister and and family and, and over the next week no doubt for for all of us here we're going to have some kind of Christmas festivities. We have different traditions, different things that we do where we gather together and we share a meal, we share stories and we exchange gifts and and in all, the, in all the busyness and all the, the hubbub and the running around that Christmas entails, it, it boils down to just one thing. And Paul wrote about it in, in Romans chapter 5, starting in verse 6. He says, you see, at just the right time. I love that, I love that verse. At just the right time. God knew exactly what he was doing when he sent Jesus, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, when, there was, when we couldn't fix our sin problem on our own, when we, couldn't, when we couldn't save ourselves, when we couldn't make ourselves right with God. Christ died for the ungodly. For rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners... Christ died for us. God God didn't wait for us to to get our lives figured out and to get it all squared away. God God didn't wait for us to get our act together, for us to stop sinning, to fix our behavior. Paul writes that while we were still sinners, before before we even gave God a, a, a second thought, while we were in the middle of doing that thing that we wish we could go back and change, that thing that we regret more than anything else in our life, while we were doing that, Jesus left heaven and came down. That's what love compelled him to do. that's, That's what God's amazing, incredible, undeserved, unmerited love for you compelled him to do. I'm going to leave heaven, I'm going to come, put on flesh, become a baby born in a a stable to save the people I love, to do for them what they can't do for themselves. That is, Jesus is the embodiment of God's love, and that's the beauty of Christmas. that's, That's the beauty of what we celebrate on December 25th. So if you would, would you stand and let me just pray as we close out our our time here together. Lord, we we are so incredibly grateful for you. God, thank you for your amazing love. Thank you for your amazing love, your incredible grace. God, that we've never earned, we've never deserved. God, there's nothing we could have done to have prompted you to do it. It's all by your grace, all by your love for us, Lord. And God, we don't, we don't want to take that for granted. God, we recognize. God, we want to see with, with, with clarity. We want to see with, with open eyes. God, the, the way you see us, Lord, the, the love that you have for us, Lord, that, that it was your love for us that compelled you to leave heaven, come down in the form of a baby. God, that's what we celebrate. And I'm so, I'm so incredibly grateful for it, Lord. And I pray for those in the room this morning that, that feel unworthy and undeserving, Lord. It's because we are, God. We we fully acknowledge and admit that to you, God. We are unworthy and undeserving of your love, and yet we 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 freely accept that gift that you've offered to us, Lord. That those those in the room that feel insignificant, like I don't I, what, what I don't even matter. God, you said, the one matters to you. You're willing to leave the ninety nine to pursue after the one. God, we're so thankful and grateful for that. God, as we enter the, this final week before, before Christmas, God, I pray that you would give us just a, a, a fresh reminder that, that that scripture, John three sixteen. God, it wouldn't just be words on a page. It wouldn't be something that we just nod our head in agreement to, but God, that it would become real to us, that we would recognize how amazing your love for us truly is. And God, when we can see that, when we can own it, we can, when we can hold on to that and grasp it, God, that, that would change who we are. It would change how we live. It would change how we think. God, we just honor you. God, we thank you for the amazing gift of your son. Thank you for your love for us that you've poured out. In Jesus' name.